This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. And welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. Since the most recent conflict erupted between Israel and Gaza following the October 7 Hamas attacks and Israel's subsequent mass bombings of the Gaza Strip, the Indonesian public and government have overwhelmingly condemned Israeli actions. Like most Muslim nations around the world, Indonesia's solidarity with the state and people of Palestine is long-standing and deeply felt. Large prayer gatherings and Indonesia's diplomatic efforts on the world stage demonstrate the importance of Palestine and its struggle against Israel for how Indonesia sees its role internationally, but also in relation to politics, security and social harmony at home. With no formal diplomatic recognition, it's rare for direct interaction between the two peoples to take place. Yet for Indonesians, be they Muslim or Christian, this part of the world and the idea of Arabness holds special and sacred meaning and has an inevitable pull. As Indonesia's expanding middle classes have enjoyed greater access to international travel, religious or pilgrimage tourism has enabled both Muslim and Christian Indonesians to encounter Israel and Palestine firsthand. How was this movement between countries with no official representation negotiated? And for those Indonesians who visited, have in-country encounters shifted their views of Israel-Palestine? What role, if any, will Indonesia play in attempts to build a bridge between Israel and Palestine and find an end to this intractable conflict? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined by Miriam Luking, author of Indonesians and Their Arab World, Guided Mobility Among Labour Migrants and Mecca Pilgrims. Hello, Miriam. And welcome to Talking Indonesia. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Gemma. Miriam, I wondered if we could start by you giving us a little bit of a brief background on Indonesia's relations with the state of Israel and with Palestine. But I guess really to tell us about Indonesia's relationship with the Middle East more generally. Yeah, so first of all, I'm well aware of the fact that many of us are um, these days with our hearts and minds in in Gaza, in the West Bank, in Israel, after what has happened on October 7th and the aftermath. But I want to talk a bit about the past and how relationships between Indonesia and the Middle East or the Arab world more generally look like, because that's quite a, it's quite a complex issue. So I started to work on this Almost a decade ago, in 2013, I started to do research for my PhD, and I was curious in what people in Indonesia mean when they say Arab, in Bahasa Indonesia, Arab, or Budaya Arab, Arab culture, Orang Arab, Bahasa Arab. There is also the notion of saying Meng Arabkan, to Arabize something, or I heard rumors about Arabisasi, Arab influence at the time. People were talking about the so-called conservative turn, also something like Arab Araban, people's Arabness. So I was thinking, what do people actually mean when they say something is being Arabized or it becomes Arab? And I started to do research with two groups in Indonesia 
Tunisian society who maybe represent very contrasting images of the Arab world. On the one hand, pilgrims who do the Hajj or the Umrah, the, the obligatory pilgrimage to Mecca and the voluntary pilgrimage to Mecca, where, of course, the Arab world and also the Arabic language as the language of the Holy Quran stand for the Arab world as the historical birthplace of Islam and also the Sunnah, the life and words of the Prophet, which is rooted in Arabic culture and customs and just also physically and geographically as a place that people orient themselves, like even in daily prayers, Muslims all over the world orient themselves towards this region, of course. And then on the other hand, labor migrants, Tanaga Karja, Wanita in most cases, uh, female labor migrants who work in private households in Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries who often experience abuse and exploitation and who also in the Indonesian and international media, in this context, the Arab world is more represented as a place of human rights violation or suffering. So I thought, okay, maybe these two groups, they contrast two extremes in these broad, diverse perceptions of the Arab world. But what I found in this research is that the positive and the negative connotations with the Arab world can be conflated. And even within one biography, a person can be a migrant and a pilgrim at the same time or uh, one after the other. So it is very complex. I found that the relations to the Arab world in Indonesia are rather ambivalent, where on the one hand, there is a special spiritual connection and also adoption of maybe clothing styles or language. But on the other hand, I often heard in my research that people in Indonesia are not like in the Arab world, where people would emphasize that there are differences between Middle Eastern or Arabic traditions in Islam and Indonesian traditions. And that sometimes within Indonesia, the term Arab is a term that is being used to describe divisions within Indonesia, not only to talk about people actually in the Middle East or the Arab world, but also within the Indonesia. So long story short, it's a very complex issue. And then Palestine has a special place in this whole complexity, because to make it short, I found that people in Indonesia tend to see Palestine as the good Arab brothers and sisters, where there might be other quote-unquote Arab others in other parts of the Arab world who represent the more harsh or violent yeah, Arabs and uh, where people would say, oh, why did God send his prophets to the Middle East? Because they are harsh and violent and they needed a prophet to teach them how to become better Muslims. But this doesn't uh, refer to Palestine. So Palestine is often seen as the good Arab brothers and sisters. There is a lot of empathy for the Palestinian people in Indonesia. It is a very emotional issue. And as much as Indonesian people might themselves need support or suffer from a lack of money, for example, they are often willing to donate money to the Palestinian cause or to charity. There is even an Indonesian hospital in Gaza that was now also bombed in the war. It, and it is accused of being like all the hospitals as also a, a shelter for Hamas. But regardless of that, there is a lot of support from Indonesia for Palestine. And this started early on. This started during the Indonesian independence movement when it was actually the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and then the Supreme Leader of the Council of Palestine, Sheikh Mohammed um, Amin al-Husseini, who was, among other things, collaborating with Nazi Germany. So there was also some anti-Semitism, but he was one of the first to recognize Indonesian independence in 1945 on an international level and to advocate for the recognition of Indonesian independence. And that's why a lot of people in Indonesia bring this up 
emphasizing the special connection between the two nations and to feel that after it was Palestinian authorities who supported Indonesian independence, people in Indonesia also feel committed to support the Palestinian cause. And that has happened in different ways. And there are different opinions about this in Indonesia. I mean, it's on the one hand, people who emphasize that there can be no way of recognizing the state of Israel and that Indonesia needs to support the uprising or the opposition against the Israeli occupation. But on the other hand, there are also people in Indonesia who say only by recognizing Israel, one can actually become a mediator. And one of the prominent supporters of this idea was Abdurrahman Wahid Kustur, who was invited by Yitzhak Rabin in 1994. Of course, Rabin was a very different leader than Netanyahu. He was a ray of light or hope for the people in the region to bring about peace. And it's understandable that maybe Abdurrahman Wahid had also the hope that by collaborating with Israel, Indonesia could become a mediator. And after the assassination of Rabin, Gustur continued to talk about the possibility of diplomatic relations with Shimon Peres. And also former Vice President Yusuf Kala suggested that the government should open diplomatic relationships with Israel to open up the possibility of becoming a mediator. But uh, there has been a lot of critique from oppositions to this idea. So within the Muslim population of uh, Indonesia, there is different opinions about this. And then also in Indonesia's Christian minority, this is a, another story because Indonesia's Christian minority has an interest in the land of Israel as a biblical land. And after I worked on the Hajj pilgrimage, I found that for many Christian Indonesians, an equivalent to the Hajj is a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or to the so-called Holy Land, which some of my interlocutors said, this is our Hajj, this is the Christian Hajj. And they did this yeah, in relation to, to the Muslim Hajj, which is a life-changing, uh, once-in-a-lifetime event for many people in Indonesia. And in recent years, there have been more and more tourist pilgrimages or pilgrimage package tours, first from Indonesia's Christian community, but later also from the Muslim community. So while Christians felt inspired by the Hajj to do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, later Muslim Indonesians saw that Jerusalem is, of course, also a Muslim destination, referring to a Hadith by Al-Bukhari that designates Al-Aqsa, the farthest mosque in Al-Quds, in the Holy One in Jerusalem, as a third pilgrimage destination. So then I worked a bit on that, and it just made the picture more complex to to show that also within Indonesia's Christian minority, there might be people who put up the Israeli flag in Papua or in Sulawesi. But then on the other hand, there are also many Christian Indonesians who emphasize that doing a pilgrimage to Israel does not mean to take a stand in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Yeah, I want to ask you about this tourism and really, so, you know, what we know, and you've painted that such a complex picture, which it is, but politically, it's pretty stark. Diplomatically, it's very stark in that Israel and Indonesia have no diplomatic relations. They don't have an embassy in each other's countries. And yet, as you just said, there is quite a booming tourism industry from Indonesia into Israel, at least before the pandemic. So tell us a little bit more about that. How does it work logistically? But tell us about the kinds of tours and who was who was wanting to visit Israel. 
Yeah, so this started in the 1980s when Christian Indonesians became interested in these Holy Land pilgrimages. It's also related to economic growth and yeah, people who can afford to travel. That's the same for Mecca and for religious tourism and tourism in general. But practically, so if two countries do not have diplomatic relations, they arrange all of their interactions through the embassy in a third country. So from Indonesia, that would be the Israeli embassy in Singapore. And for Israel, that would be the Indonesian embassy in Amman, in Jordan. And there are limited visa agreements, despite the lack of diplomatic relations. There are limited visa agreements that allow the travel in guided groups to both sides. So at the moment, Israelis and Indonesians cannot travel to one another's country individually, let's say as backpacking tourists, but they can go in a guided travel group with a guide and they should not leave the group. And then there are other exemptions like business visas or study visas. But for tourism, uh, travel would happen in these guided groups. And logistically, most of these groups from Indonesia travel to Egypt also because of flight connections and um, border crossings. So it's much easier to arrive in Cairo. And then they also visit some historical and religious sites in Egypt. They cross um, Sinai via land and they enter Israel from the southern border crossing between Egypt and Israel. Then they go up to Jerusalem. They visit places in the West Bank. For the Christian pilgrims, Bethlehem is, of course, an important destination in the West Bank, also Jericho. And a lot of Christian pilgrims then would go up to the northern Galilee, which is part of Israel, to Nazareth, of course, the, the Lake of Galilee. And then they would cross from the northern border crossing between Israel and Jordan and return to Indonesia from Amman. So that's how they do this logistically. And for the Muslim groups, the itinerary is a bit different. I mean, they mostly follow the Christian itinerary but they would spend more time in Jerusalem at uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is their major destination. But they are also interested in grave sites of, let's say, Ibrahim or Abraham. Um, that's a grave site in Hebron, which is also in the occupied West Bank. And sometimes they are interested in Jesus as a prophet, Nabi Isa. So then they would also visit some of the Christian pilgrimage destinations and sometimes the itineraries would overlap. Physically, they do overlap. Like they do pass each other. They, they do overlap at the official religious sites, but they especially overlap in the hotels and restaurants. <laughs> That's actually that there are some hotels in Israel and in the West Bank who specialized in Asian tourism or let's say also Indonesian tourism. There is a small hotel near Bethlehem that is run by a Christian Palestinian family who really specialized in Indonesian tourism and you would enter the hotel and where you would have in other hotels maybe these these iconic clocks of the different world times of London, Tokyo, New York. There you would have uh, Jerusalem, Jakarta. So it's um, welcoming Indonesian pilgrims. Right. And they would have a menu that was appropriate. Exactly. They would have nasi goreng for breakfast. And um, and then there are some restaurants in Jerusalem and in the West Bank catering the needs of Indonesian tourists. And these are obviously fairly middle class Indonesians. Yeah. Yeah. So most of them are from the urban middle classes, even though I must say that for the Christian groups, there are also some Christian groups from rural areas where people would save for many years 
will save money to do this journey from Papua, from North Sumatra, or even like from Kalimantan. And sometimes it's also congregations collecting money for their religious elders or the priests and ministers for them to do the pilgrimage. And who are the tour guides? Are they Indonesians or locals who can speak Bahasa? Yeah, so that's a collaboration between Indonesian tourist guides and local tourist guides. There would always be what they call the Indonesian tour leader, who would guide the group from Indonesia in the different countries, Egypt, Israel, Palestine, Jordan. And then in the destination countries, they have local guides, also in Egypt, also in, in, in Jordan. But what I, I mean, I, I accompanied most groups in and around Jerusalem and in Israel and in the West Bank. And there are a number of around 30 guides, Israelis and Palestinians, who learn Bahasa Indonesia for the purpose of guiding tourists. And there was even a lack, I mean, before the pandemic, there was even a lack of Indonesian-speaking tourist guides. So me being the researcher, I would sometimes be approached as, <laughs> can you be a translator or maybe you want to change your profession from being a researcher to become a tourist guide. So that, that's interesting that before the pandemic, it was really booming. And there would be Israelis and Palestinians asking me if I could teach them some Bahasa. And it's ironic that many of these guides, the Palestinian and the Israeli guides, would learn Bahasa Indonesia autodidactic ways or on the internet, because they also cannot really travel to Indonesia to do maybe a language course at uh, Indonesia. Exactly. Language. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine so it would have to be a guided tour, as you described. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They'd have to get a whole bunch of them organized together. Yeah. So there is um, one, there is a few exemptions. Like there is some uh, students from the West Bank who received study visas in Indonesia and who joined Tarmasiswa. So that was very unique. And there is a good friend in, in Hebron, a Palestinian who studied for several years in Aceh and who now works as a tourist guide in the West Bank and also has the idea of opening an Indonesian restaurant in Hebron. So there are some examples like that existing. Wow. So tell us a little bit more about the marketing strategies of these travel agents. Obviously, they've been very effective or were very effective because they've created this incredible industry that was there and booming as you described it. You argue that the travel agents leverage a narrative of separation to appeal to their customers. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that and why it was so successful in the Indonesian context? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier that the Palestinian cause is a very emotional issue in Indonesia and in many parts of the, the Muslim world. So I do think that some of the travel agencies, they also, I mean, they refer to this and in their advertisements, they engage with Indonesian people's interest in Palestine. And some of them also have the idea that tourism can support the Palestinian cause. This also happens against the background of controversies because there are people in Indonesia who say one should never accept an Israeli visa to visit quote-unquote, occupied Palestine. So as much as they are interested in Palestine, they say we cannot go there because this means to accept a visa by the state of Israel. But then the travel agents whom I interviewed said, uh, we believe that showing Muslim presence in Jerusalem supports the Palestinian cause. And also now that, for example, the Al-Aqsa compound is a, a contested area where Maybe some uh, Jewish groups want to enter this area to pray at the site and people are afraid that the status quo of the Al-Aqsa compound might change. So 
this is what the travel agents said, that showing Muslim presence is very important to support the status quo, that Al-Aqsa continues to be a Muslim site. That's quite overtly political then, isn't it? Yeah. So that's that's the political statements mobilized by travel agents. And they would also say that even though Israel might gain some money from tourism through tax payments and entry visas, they said that still they would spend money in Palestine. They would stay maybe in hotels in the West Bank. They would make sure that the hotel owners would be Palestinian families if they stay in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem. So they had this idea that they can support the Palestinian cause by showing Muslim presence, by showing their solidarity, by making donations in addition to shopping and purchases. But I found that travel agents emphasize this very much because it is so controversial to travel to Israel and uh, Palestine. And maybe part of it is to attract customers' interest. Maybe part of it is in order to justify these travels. And of course, I, I think part of it is really the sincere interest of supporting the Palestinian people. Yeah, but then on the other hand, for the Christian market, I found that a lot of Christian travel agencies were much more neutral, that they would advertise uh, when you think of the posters and the advertisements in Muslim advertisements, you would often see Ziyara Al-Aqsa, like uh, Al-Aqsa pilgrimage, and the, they often use Palestine as a country name. And uh, I found that Christian travel agencies, they avoid the mention of any country name. They would term it as Holy Land Pilgrimage or also the Tanah Perjanjian, the Promised Land, and not mention any country name. Maybe only a few like travel agencies who also position themselves as a bit more political, especially among Pentecostal churches, like new emerging churches in urban areas would use the country name Israel. And I interviewed some of the travel agents and ministers from these churches who also have a political agenda, who say, no, we want to support the recognition of Israel and who were very interested in the Jewish roots of Christianity and in collaboration with the Jewish people as God's chosen people. But I mean, this is still looking at Israel's through a biblical lens and where maybe this biblical lens is combined with the political idea of recognizing Israel. So you mentioned before that in some of my articles, I use this term narratives of separation. I found that it was especially the travel agents and the religious leaders who would use these narratives of separations. But I found that the average pilgrimage participants were not so interested in these narratives of separations. They were more interested in the spiritual experiences and in what's really happening in the travel. And as much as the guided package tours happen in a tourist bubble, to use the words of the sociologist Eric Cohen, so as much as this is a tourist bubble, sometimes the experience of travel can also blur boundaries and burst bubbles and uh, see that there is more than two sides. And even if there is the idea of taking sides, sometimes people realize, oh, there is actually much more than two sides. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we imagine travel to do and to be, opening your mind, broadening your views. And so did you see this happening with Indonesian pilgrims where they were encountering, say, each other, you know, an Indonesian Muslim or Indonesian Christian or the world at large in Israel? Did you see that there were these blurring of lines taking place? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, you know, the, the group thing sounds a bit limiting. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah. So again, what Eric Cohen calls the bubble means that in especially in guided package tourism, we tend to see the person sitting next to us, walking in front of us. Maybe when groups walk on the Via Dolorosa, it's um it's a religious spiritual journey. They walk in the group, they have their Indonesian language prayer books. So even like physically, they would maybe be with their eyes in the prayer book and with the person next to them and not so much look around what's happening there. But nevertheless, I found that in several occasions, there were um, situations where people would look beyond. And just to give one example, there are many examples, but to give one example, tourism is actually a field where Jewish Muslim and Christian people in Israel and Palestine collaborate relatively in a, in a pragmatic manner. And within one group, there would often be maybe a Palestinian Bahasa Indonesian speaking tour guide who is maybe a Palestinian Christian. And the travel agent might be an Israeli travel agent and the bus driver might be a Muslim Palestinian. And this is like something that the Indonesian groups recognize that, oh, we always thought that people are murdering one another here, but in fact, they are all doing business together. And I remember like this one Palestinian bus driver, when I accompanied the groups that I would meet him again and again. And he told me that he has been driving Indonesians around the country for the last 20 years. And he knew all the Indonesian church songs by heart. So he, he knew like some Bahasa Indonesia, and he would sing along in these church songs, even though he was himself a Muslim Palestinian. And this is something that Indonesians were fascinated about and that you can imagine that Indonesians would ask him if they can film him and upload this on YouTube because they were very proud to see someone in another part of the world to know their language, to know their songs, and also to contradict their perceptions that there are Muslim people who engage with Christianity or there might be Jewish Israelis who know a lot about the history of Islam, on the other hand. So these encounters happened. And also, as you asked in your question, the encounters between Indonesians, Muslim and Christian groups who realized that Jerusalem is a shared destination. It is the city of the three so-called Abrahamic faiths. And as I said earlier, maybe when they realized that, oh, we both like uh, nasi goreng for breakfast or Indomie becomes our emergency food when we cannot find anything else. And this is where in hotels, some of the Pilgrims told me that they would exchange their stock of emergency food with the Muslim or Christian group. I found that, yeah, there are these uh, moments of recognizing the togetherness and to realize that, yeah, in the end, we are all just uh, people who want to live together and explore and experience and that the conflict is a political conflict. So several of my interlocutors would say, yeah, we don't want to talk about politics. This is politics. And we are interested in religion and in experiences. They're a pretty, what would you say, special group of Indonesians, right, that have had that opportunity to yeah. have that experience, to have those encounters and to travel to Israel. But obviously, as we know, the majority have not had that opportunity. No. No. Um, and yet, as you've written about, back home in Indonesia, this is also playing out. Tell us a little bit about that, how this taking sides, if you like, plays out in Indonesia when you're talking about Israel and Palestine. Yeah. So unfortunately, I found that during the time of travel, it seems to be easier to 
see complexities and to be open for, yeah, to, to create empathy with other sides or to see that there is more than two sides. But I found that when people return to Indonesia, it, it seems to be easier to fall back into the polarizations. And there is only a few people that maybe have the courage or the willingness to engage in the complexities. In the last few weeks, I followed some of the social media activities of my research partners and interlocutors. And there is a minister from a church in Jakarta who would post a lot about the suffering of the children in the current situation and emphasize that it's the children and it's the civilians on both sides who are suffering. And I mean, he would also post emotional pictures of a Jewish-Israeli child and a Palestinian child holding hands and uh, drawing people's attention to the fact that it's the innocent people who become victims of this conflict and of the terrorism and of the war and the occupation. But um, I also found, on the other hand, that one of my interlocutors from yeah, Muslim travel agencies, that she was actually in Jerusalem last week. So Just as a side note, that even now in the war, to some extent, uh, tourism still happens, which is somehow unbelievable. But she, I think now in the context of the war, of course, she was much more maybe also siding with Palestine. And she uploaded some filming where she was filming uh, checkpoints in the West Bank. And she was again and again using the word Penjaja, the colonizer to talk about uh, Israel as the colonizers. And I think in the context of war, it is very difficult to break out of the polarizations and to say, no, we don't want to take sides. We want to show that uh, there are people on both sides. I think it's now, for many people, um, it, 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 is, it becomes very emotional. And in this state of being emotional, what I see and also what I saw earlier when I did research in Indonesia, I found that people tend to take sides and maybe to put up flags. The flags are symbols of taking sides. We see, of course, now at the solidarity rallies, we see a lot of Palestinian flags. But maybe the Palestinian flag has in many parts of the world also become a symbol for something else. And the same is, counts for the Israeli flag. I mean, there is an interesting research by Henry Murtinen, who talked about Papua as the land under two flags, none of them being the Indonesian flag. So one of them being the Morning Star flag and the other one being the Israeli flag, where in some regions in Indonesia, minorities seek a connection with Israel or emphasize that they feel this uh, connectedness with Israel. I must say that I don't know how much people feel that they can show the Israeli flag at the moment in Indonesia. I think that's something that's rather risky at the moment. I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're talking about how war has, has hardened these lines. Yeah. But you, you point out, though, that even before this, politically, it was very difficult. And even though, you know, you discussed the role of Gustur earlier. Even before October 7 this year, things had been quite difficult between Indonesia and Israel. Can you tell us about the case sparked in 2018 involving the cancellation of visas to enter Israel? Yeah, so that's an interesting story. So that was 
when the U.S. embassy was moved, so during the presidency of Donald Trump, the U.S. embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is like a recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, whereas most of the international community do not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. In 2018, there were a lot of protests in Indonesia against this move of the embassy. And what I just said about the Israeli flags is that at the time there were also hoax news on or fake news on Indonesian social media where people in Papua were shown to wave the Israeli flag. And then it was claimed that this happened as a celebration of the move of the U.S. embassy. And there was even some violence against the churches in Indonesia, even though it was later proven that these images were from a time long before the move of the U.S. embassy. But this is an example of how something that happens in Israel-Palestine can have consequences in Indonesia. And And because of these protests that happened in Indonesia, it was actually the, the Indonesian side who said, no, there's no more relations with Israel. We won't give any visas to Israelis, not even to guided groups. And then Israel in return announced that also it was in June that there would be no more visas for Indonesian groups. So this all happened in the context of the move of the U.S. embassy and the tensions uh, during the time, and also the protests in Gaza. There were, um, at the time, protests of people marching towards the border fence. And that was when I was based in Jerusalem and accompanied many tourist groups. And everyone was shocked because for the business, it, it was, of course, a disaster. As I mentioned earlier, there were Palestinian family-run tourist businesses who specialized in Indonesian tourism, building hotels for Indonesian tourists. And then there was a complete stop of tourism from Indonesia. And everyone tried to emphasize that this harms also the Palestinian people. So as one of the Israeli tour guides said that sometimes there are situations where there seems to be an outperformance, where one party wants to be better than the other party, and then you end up in an extreme situation that nobody wanted in the first place. Uh, they said they climbed a very high horse and they don't know how to get down from it. And in the end, it was apparently Egypt and Jordan who pointed out that this tourism also goes via Egypt and Jordan. And then when this tourism stops, it also harms Egypt and Jordan. And it, apparently it was under the negotiation of uh, Egypt and Jordan that they reinstalled the visa agreements. But during this time, Yahya Khalil from Nahdlatul Ulama visited Israel and he was given a special permit during this time. And he was speaking at the Jewish Congress. He also met with Palestinians. He even met with Benjamin Netanyahu. So I think, yeah, he's one of the people who is willing to face the critique and face the opposition and to continue this legacy of Gustur. I talked to him and his delegation and they said that they would want to build bridges. And they think that Indonesia would be a very good candidate to build bridges. That's really interesting in the current context also diplomatically where we see Indonesia's foreign minister joining a delegation of Muslim nations touring around the world, visiting key heads of governments to ostensibly negotiate for a peaceful outcome to the conflict, although it's, of course, really hard to see uh, what progress is being made there. So, You see that there is that potential, but the pressure, like you say, on an organization like NU right now back in Indonesia would be pretty severe. Like if, if, yeah. if the leaders turned around and started talking about building bridges, I can't imagine that. 
Yeah, me neither. I, I think that the current situation made it very difficult. Israel has made it very difficult for people who want to be yeah. um, their friend and who want to be their supporter. The Netanyahu government has, yeah, created immense suffering in, in Gaza and also the violence of Israeli settlers in the West Bank uh, speaks for itself. So it became very difficult. And it, it's also, I think, in places like Indonesia, maybe there is not a lot of news coverage of what happened on the Israeli side on October 7 about the Hamas atrocities, about the destruction, murder, abuse, rape, uh, killing of innocent, killing of even Thai migrant workers who shouldn't be part at all. I mean, even, of course, children and women and all the civilians. But I, I think that there is not much coverage of these Hamas atrocities. And what we see are the images of the suffering in Gaza. So it has become very difficult to become even a mediator or to find a, a middle position. And now we are in Indonesia also just before the elections. Yes. And we know that before elections, this is a time of polarization and a time to gain voters. And I think to speak to the emotions of people, unfortunately, that maybe politicians will play into these polarizations. But I must say that during the one of the big um, Palestine solidarity rallies, there was an effort to label this rally as an interfaith rally. So maybe to at least avoid the polarizations within Indonesia. Yeah. Well, your example, the example that you gave of the minister, the Christian minister and yeah. his posts, yeah. that's obviously an example of mm -hmm. that happening or an attempt at that. And hopefully that's coming from the Muslim side potentially as well, that kind of approach, the humanity at the forefront of it all. But I don't want to go there, but worst case scenario, I mean, do you think that there could be the potential for this issue to somehow play out in the way that you've described it did in Papua with attacks on churches and this kind of thing? Could that happen again? Yeah, it's, I mean, to tell you the truth, I don't want to think about it even. I'm, it's something that I'm afraid of and it's hard for me to think about it. What I, I try to, to see maybe the more hopeful signs. Yeah. Where we see that people emphasize interfaith harmony and where they do not want to create division within Indonesia. There is also, despite the, attacks on churches that have happened in the past, there is a small Jewish community. And I saw in the past few weeks that the leader of this Jewish community met with representatives of the Muslim community. And I was relieved to see that and to see that um, they apparently have good enough um, relations to stand together during these times. That's and great. Yeah. So I hope yeah. that there are enough people who are willing to stand together. And for sure, there are extremists. For, for sure, there are... Uh, extremists and terrorists um, who want to use this situation for their own benefit. But I hope that the majority of Indonesian society can stand together. We love ending on a hopeful note. So that's where yeah. we're leaving. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me, Miriam. Thank you very much for having me. That was Miriam Luking, Assistant Professor at the Department of Social and Cultural Anthropology at the University of Munich. Miriam is an anthropologist working on various forms of globalized mobility. She's author of Indonesians and Their Arab World, Guided Mobility Among Labor Migrants and Mecca Pilgrims, published by Cornell University Press. Talking Indonesia will return on the 21st of December, hosted by Jackie Baker. 
Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now and see you in 2024.